I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Internet Marketing. I'm here with John Kazarian, CEO of Excel Events. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I'm excited to talk about the events industry today. As I mentioned, you're the CEO of Excel Events. You're at the heart of the events industry, an industry that has seen disruption and development over the last couple of years. I'm excited to know what you've experienced, what you're seeing now, some of your predictions for the future, and in particular, jumping into the area of comparing and also the process in deciding whether people should host an in-person or virtual event, because there are so many options available to us now. Before we jump into all of those different areas, do you want to take a moment to describe your role to our listeners uh, so we can understand a little bit more about what you do and what Excel events are all about? Absolutely. So I am the founder and CEO of Excel Events. I started the business uh, just over eight years ago, and it's certainly been through a couple of iterations. But today, and over the past couple of years, we've been focused on helping organizations and companies of all different sizes facilitate the entirety of their event spectrum. So everything from their in-person experiences through hybrid events and virtual events. These events, they, they often tend to be more in the form of conferences. And um, you know, that's what our platform is particularly well-suited for. So everything from you know, Zapier's user conference, annual user conference is run on our platform to Carnival Cruise hosting uh, agent events for the travel agents that support Carnival. And then you name it across the board with associations hosting a variety of different types of events. So uh, whatever the type of event is, we're there to support it and facilitate all the technology needs that are required to run that event. The last couple of years have seen fairly dramatic developments and disruption. Are you feeling optimistic about the events industry for the future? Yeah, you know, 2018, 2019, it felt like there was beginning to be this itch for a resurgence of, uh, of technology and the role that technology would play within events. But then obviously throughout 2020, 2021, the event industry just got, it got flipped on its head. And uh, we're now at this point where there's starting to be a little bit more stabilization, which, you know, <laughs> the past two years were a lot of fun, but at the same time, it, every month the industry was different. And now we're starting, you know, businesses, organizations are starting to sort of get their stride when it comes to thinking about their event programming. So things are stabilizing a little bit. But one thing that's 
particularly clear is that events are going to be different in the future than they were up until 2020. And, uh, and as organizations are thinking about their event programming, it's really that. It's thinking about their annual programming instead of thinking about this one-off in-person event experience. It's the meshing of those different experiences in different mediums between virtual and in-person and different geos and the different audience segments that you can more easily access with a virtual experience than you could with in-person. Has your interest in the conference and event space changed over the last eight years? Um, were you previously, when you started Excel Events, like a keen conference goer, uh, an in-person attendee? Has that changed at all? Yeah, more so of an attendee. Uh, the events that I... So I grew up hosting events. And the the business resulted out of a 1,000-person event I was hosting in Boston. And I just went into that event looking for technology solutions. And frankly, everything was like crazy expensive or just super painful. And that's when I realized that there needed to be an easier solution and ended up throwing something together to facilitate that event I was hosting. Very light, specific solution, actually on the fundraising side of things. And frankly, it just worked. And I realized that I should be offering that to other organizers like myself who needed something that was easy to use. And I went down this path. And, and you know, so much of it is just like, when you're hosting an event, it is one of the most stressful things you can do. And event professionals are folks that have this crazy sense of urgency. I mean, it's unmatched to anything like, you know, obviously ER doctors or the military. But, but with events, you spend months building this experience that culminates in a couple of hours and everything has to go right and be there. And the last thing that you need is for technology to get in the way. So we went down this path of, of building technology. And really for us, like it's a win if we can help you get an extra 15 minutes of sleep the night before your event. So as I started to get more involved in the production side of events, I started to see what was going on in the conference space and just realized that it was, frankly, very underserved. There was a lot of technology that was sort of bulky and not that easy to use, and we wanted to change that. And as we continue to go down that path, again, we saw this opportunity for technology to become more involved and ultimately to provide us far more information. And there was a called a macro trend taking place at the same time, which is just that with Apple's war on, on Facebook and now Google tapping in, historical mechanisms of digital marketing and third-party cookie tracking were becoming less productive. As a result, it made first-party data and zero-party data all the more powerful and valuable. So we really started to think about, okay, what's events' role? What is the role of events in delivering and collecting that information? And if you think about it, like, yeah, you can do an ebook download, a white paper download. But all you really find out is that point in time aspect of what somebody did. With events, you get so much more information because somebody is willing to give up their registration data, their time, their money, even their cookie tracking, all in exchange for access to your content and your community. And this is just so much more true in the space of conferences than, than you know, many other places. And that's what was one of those other driving factors for me to realize that this is something that we can really help organizations with. Take me back to eight years ago when yeah. uh, you had this, you spotted this gap in perhaps fundraising events and you wanted to create a solution. 
how did you create the solution? Did you have any experience in like the software or technology space? Like, where did you start with that? Yeah, I wasn't like a developer by trade, but was fairly technical and worked with a friend to throw something together. So it was this like lightweight Twilio text message based solution. And, you know, again, it just it worked and we raised a bunch of money and it was really easy for the attendees to use. How did it develop from there? So did you start to spot other aspects of event needs that you were creating technology for for in-person events? And then eventually that led to the online events? Yeah. So so we over the eight eight years, it's really been how can we make life easier for every stakeholder? And that's consistently been the problem that we're looking to solve. But along the way, recognizing that events and event event professionals are just these incredibly creative folks who will walk into a warehouse and turn that into you know an unforgettable experience. So at the same time, the technology, although it has to be easy to use, also has to be powerful and flexible enough for them to be able to create that that creative experience. And as we progressed as a company, we started to get more and more demand for facilitating these larger and larger conferences. So we continue to go down that path. And then in March of 2020, well, you know, the world shut down. And at that point, we were in the hole. I mean, every event that was scheduled was canceled. Every ticket that was sold was refunded. We were, you know, actually negative from a revenue perspective because of all the uh, the refunded transaction fees. And we realized at that point that we needed to pivot, but at the same time, our customers needed to pivot. So really, we partnered with our customers, event organizers, to figure out, okay, how can we come up with a solution so that you can still host this event? And we had already been going down this path of hybrid events because, again, technology was continuing to play a bigger role in the event experience. But we had to figure out how to take that a step further and really facilitate the entirety of that experience virtually. And that's exactly what we did. That's really good that you had some kind of customer, maybe customer feedback to help you create those products. It sounds like that was an important part of the process. It certainly was. What technology solutions? So what were the needs of the customers? What was it that they didn't have that you then started to create? Yeah, well, things happen so quickly. So at first, there started to be, you know, some people that were fearful of attending in-person events, but within like a matter of days, if not hours, that changed to events and venues just shutting down entirely. And at that point, it became clear that like these organizations, they couldn't just cancel these events indefinitely. There was information that they needed to communicate, product launches, they needed to bring their community together. They needed to, you know, really be an evangelist more than ever at that point in time. So the question for us became, okay, how can we develop a solution where they can deliver the educational content that they need to deliver, but at the same time, create that opportunity for folks to network and interacting with each other, especially at a point in time where everybody was trapped at home. And that need for interaction was just so critical and necessary for folks. You know, it was almost beyond just the business need of it. It was creating that opportunity for people to grow. And from a technology perspective, we had to figure out Again, with the mantra of how do we keep this simple, what can we do to facilitate the entirety of that experience in one platform? So you're not sitting there trying to set up a Slack group for the event and then a separate Zoom room and then another place to manage the agenda. We wanted everything to be under one roof. And, and that's exactly you know, what we did there is just create a seamless experience so that 
people didn't have to jump around. The other thing to keep in mind there is from an attendee's perspective, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to you know start responding to emails and 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 you know lose the event. And if we thought that people were going to have to jump between tools or software in order to stay within that experience, then it was going to be even more challenging to keep their attention. So we wanted to, again, make sure that everything stayed in one place. You've piqued my curiosity now. Let's start uh, with that, with the keeping people's experience all in one place. Were there any aspects of either technology or event engagement uh, that you saw develop rapidly in this last couple of years to help keep people engaged in online conferences and events? that may be different to what you experienced previously? Anything new? Yeah, there's been a lot of progress on the video side of things. Uh, The scale at which video can be delivered is one big aspect of it. There's also been a lot of innovation and investment in gamifying experiences and doing so in a productive fashion. I mean, it's a big area of influence for us. Uh, And one, one part of that in particular is just that it goes beyond the attendee as well. It's a great opportunity for organizations to engage sponsors and have sponsors sponsoring particular challenges. Maybe, you know, if you visit the sponsor's booth, they're going to draw one winner for winning an iPad or AirPods or something like that. So that's, you know, that's one small element of what's been delivered into these platforms. It's not necessarily novel or particularly innovative, but the execution of it has grown tremendously. And certainly technology stepped up again to create a way that those creatives are able to deliver that experience and make it unique and customizable to each event experience. I haven't experienced too much of that myself, but as you said, maybe in event challenges, I guess that's something that can work in person, but also for virtual events. I imagine you're talking about things like quizzes, and uh, yeah, maybe polls and things like that during events as well. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about here? Yeah, it certainly can include quizzes, polls, interaction, chat, but also the number of folks that somebody meets with or time they spend networking or exhibit uh-huh. their booths who they've visited. The need for finding a solution for sponsors and exhibitors was also something that really flourished throughout this period of time. And what sort of started to transpire was that some solutions out there were thinking about the exhibitor experience really as just like a microsite where people can go and browse. And then other solutions were thinking about it from the perspective of, okay, like if I were at an in-person event and I just set up my booth, but I never staffed that booth, what are the results I'm going to see? And if we're thinking, okay, this booth needs to be staffed and it needs to be staffed digitally, What are the elements of interaction that we need to deliver for those exhibitors so that they can actually benefit from it? They can generate leads. They can have conversations with folks that are relevant and topical. I'll give you an example of like uh, one, uh, probably the largest auto part distributor franchise in the United States. They hosted an event over two or three days and they sold $7 million worth of tools, power tools. Uh, during the course of that event. And the reason is that all of those different power tool manufacturers were there and they were staffing those booths, but they were able to understand and see in real time what somebody was interested in. Somebody was browsing uh, you know, a saw, for example, you wouldn't start chatting with them about a drill. You wouldn't do that in person if they picked up that saw. 
So why would you do that virtually? And by ensuring that those folks have that context, contextual information in real time, it just delivered a, a far better result. And again, it was real people there from those companies that were able to speak on behalf of those products and then get a purchase order signed right there on the spot. That's already a unique difference between virtual and hybrid events in comparison to in-person events. I want to come back to that in a moment. Another aspect of this that I'm really curious about, like just thinking myself as a user of communication tools and networking tools at that time, every company was rolling out new features, like there was a new thing on Zoom and Slack and Teams. Everything was changing so fast. Were you paying attention to competitors at that time? Or did you just make a conscious effort not to so you could focus on your product? Yeah, it's, um, you know, in our space, there was a lot of companies that sort of popped up that were never an event, event tech company pre pandemic, but they popped up because there was a lot of capital flowing into the space and a lot of headlines, uh, taking place. It was and continues to be somewhat, you know, unavoidable to understand what competitors are doing just because our customers and our prospects are also doing their due diligence and speaking with competitors and, there may be a feature that sounds compelling from one competitor, and maybe it's something that we don't offer. And likewise, there's things that we offer that you know other competitors don't. But at the end of the day, yes, that discipline is incredibly challenging because a lot of this stuff is like, oh, that's cool, I want to do that. But you know, the other reality is for any organization that is evaluating event tech providers, my suggestion is find a solution that has the depth and breadth of product set so that you have this palette of solutions to choose from, but only pick 20% for any particular event because you don't want to overwhelm your attendees. And frankly, you don't want to overwhelm yourself either in your event planning. But by having that palette of tools available to you, you know, it's similar to the, we talked about before where an event professional walks into an empty warehouse and they design that experience and they make it unforgettable. And in the virtual space, that palette of tools does the same thing. It gives you the opportunity to make each of those event experiences unique. But don't overwhelm. You don't need to fit everything into that warehouse for every single event. I assume as well that it changed the way in which you approach the rollout of new features and just product development in general. Yeah. One, I would say it's... You know, it's more of, I guess, the industry itself. Look, events, again, are one of those things where, like, you spend so much time building experience that culminates in a couple of hours. But in addition to that, it's one of those things where, like, everybody is on at once. And you can't change something in the middle of an event. And we moved from deploying multiple times per day to deploying in sprints because we wanted to take extra time to run everything through automated tests, but also running everything through manual testing. We run our own event on our platform every day, just as another mechanism on our staging site as of testing before anything gets deployed. And that change in itself, although, you know, it, it, it feels like it slowed us down, it created a level of stability for the experience. And I don't just mean stability in a bug getting released, but stability in the sense of, if you're building an event experience around things operating a certain way and then they change on you 12 hours before your event, that's a stress that you don't need as an event organizer. So it's, yeah, our, our, our product development and deployment process certainly changed in that regard. 
And as a company, as we've matured, an MVP and uh, uh, John Null, our, our, our VP of product, you know, love to say this, it's we're no longer thinking about building MVPs. We're, we're now thinking about building minimal lovable products. The first thing that we deliver has to be something that folks are going to enjoy. It can't just be something that is sort of there as a, a proof of concept. Um, so we, we have invested a little bit more effort and time into getting things right on the first iteration. Did it mean any changes to personnel that you hired or the, like, the makeup of your organization structure? Uh, I'm just thinking here that there was a greater demand on software developers at this time. Yeah, we certainly did. Uh, our organization is about 50% engineering. Uh, we've expanded our product team as well. But really, a lot of it has come down to the process that we've implemented for understanding what we need to be building, the way that we get insight from customers before we build anything. But then also thinking about the team structure of our engineering team and the QA process. And again, the QA process is a huge aspect of you know, what, what we're having to think about in delivering these solutions. Because again, stability is so critical in the world of events. It's not like uh, you know, like an analytics tool where if there is an incident, we can just redeploy in 30 minutes and somebody waits half an hour to get the results of their information. Now, in, in the world of events, if there's an incident, as minor as it could possibly be, if that's during somebody's event, they could lose all of their attendance. And we just, you know, our first priority to our customers is to ensure that never happens. Are there any customer requests, and this could be for in-person events or hybrid and virtual events, requests for technology that you've not been able to yet fulfill? So so one of those demands where you're like, oh, actually, we don't quite know how to solve this problem yet. And maybe it's a work in progress, something that you're looking at. There are a handful of things that we can't wait to solve. <laughs> um, the challenge is just we need to be selective about what we're tackling. And at yeah. the same time, there's so many companies out there today where they have an incredibly wide set of functionality and features. But some of this stuff, you use it and you're like, I know that this thing has not been touched since 2006. We don't want to be one of those companies where you're using something that you know hasn't even been looked at in a decade. So we also have to balance and maintain ensuring that the core functionality is continuously evolving and improving. So that does, you know, pose a little bit of, a, I won't say a challenge or a roadblock, but we just, you know, as we think about our our resourcing, that's definitely a consideration that that we're taking in. But at this point, you know, I wouldn't say that there's anything that we've kind of come across that say, you know, we're like, we don't know how to solve that. It's more a matter of just capacity planning. Yeah, prioritization, and in the software as a service space, I know that I see a lot of companies providing more transparency about their roadmaps and actually using upvoting features to allow this kind of feedback loop between customers to upvote features and then use that as a prioritization mechanism um, to help with software development and product development. Is there any other data that you look at to help you make that decision about when to launch certain features? We, um, we did dabble with like using a voting system and, and putting that customer facing. But what we found is we have our, you know, our, our long-term roadmap as well as our short-term roadmap. And we didn't want to jeopardize our long-term roadmap at the expense of some of these shorter-term features. And that balancing act of communicating with customers and saying, well, you know, why has this been upvoted so many times, but it hasn't delivered yet? Well, 
they don't always, you know, customers don't under, always know the architecture of a platform or why something may or may not take a longer time to deliver upon than they may see it, you know, as, as taking. So uh, we ultimately decided that, you know, we no longer keep that publicly visible. What we do have is that similar system internally. And the way that we maintain that is just that we have 24-7, 365 customer support, real people available any hour of the day with a median response time under 30 seconds. So we are very, very active in conversations with our customers. And as a result, they're very active about giving us feedback. And that feedback gets tracked and recorded so that we can act upon it. But at least it doesn't set a false expectation around when something may be delivered because it's it's uh, in the public eye. I assume that you will have got the question at some point, you know, now that there are options for hybrid events, virtual events and in-person events, how do you choose? Like, where do you start as a company when making that decision? So I appreciate that's a broad question. So maybe breaking it down to in-person events and then hybrid events and virtual do you have any principles that you follow or advice for businesses that might be listening to this when they're going through this process of thinking, right, they've kind of established maybe that conferencing or events is the right marketing or business solution for whatever their need is, but then they don't quite know whether to start, whether that should be online, offline. Where do they start? Yeah. So, so there's generally two questions that I start by asking. Well, first is where's your, where's your audience base, right? So if you're a, uh, a software company, there's a good chance that your audience base is global. And right now, it's very expensive to travel abroad. So that's one consideration that you should take. The other is, has your organization hosted events before? And if you haven't, then the answer is almost always start with virtual for a couple of reasons. One, it decreases your initial cost. Two is, frankly, you don't have to plan it as far out because you don't need to get venues booked. It's easier to get attendees there because they don't need to plan travel either and they don't need to get budget approval. The other thing that it allows you to do is it allows you to start building an audience. And that audience is not just the attendee. That's not the only stakeholder here. It's also the sponsors. It's also the speakers. So as you start to build that audience, and this may be over a series of virtual events, it prepares you to be able to host that first in-person event experience because you already have folks that are committed across all of those different stakeholders and are going to participate in that in-person event. So you decrease the risk of that in-person event. Now, if you're an organization that had historically been hosting in-person events, there's a good deal that you've reshaped your programming over the past two years. There's also a good chance that you pivoted to hosting some virtual events over the past two years. With those types of organizations, what we're seeing is that they're thinking about that program more holistically and thinking about the meshing of those different experiences throughout that annual program. The other thing that we are seeing is that the world of virtual, because it reduces the overhead of hosting each event, you don't have all the fixed costs of renting the venue, the minimum fees for catering, travel, etc. It allows you to create more targeted experiences for certain segments of your customer base or your lead base, whatever it might be that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do with an in-person event. Often in-person events, there's this called a vanity metric of measuring how many attendees did we get. And part of the driver for that historical metric has been, well, okay, we look at an event in isolation. We know how many attendees we got and we know what it costs to put on that event so we can calculate our cost per attendee. And the more attendees we get, you know, usually the, the variable cost is decreasing per incremental attendee because of the, the fixed cost overhead. 
But that doesn't necessarily translate to business results. So the other thing that we're seeing is organizations really taking a step back and saying, okay, for each event that's part of this program, what is the goal of that particular event? Is it a brand activation? Is it a product launch event? Is it a member association event? And as they start to think about that, then they can say, okay, this is the goal of the event. Here are the KPIs that we're going to measure success of this event on. I've gotten buy-off and signature from upper management on how we're defining success of this event. Now I'm going to go out there and build this experience to deliver on those KPIs. One thing that's interesting about this is that this also, I assume, means that there's been a big change for event organizers, those people that are in those roles. It may be be overwhelming, but it's also like a whole new world of opportunity for event organizers that have previously just been hosting in-person events. So is that something that you're seeing, like event organizers having to change, to upskill, to maybe become more technically savvy? Yeah, absolutely. And what we've seen is this meshing between event professionals and demand gen folks. So there's a much heavier degree of digital marketing that's become part of the event experience or the event manager experience. And we're also seeing, you know, say over 2022 here, about 60% of our of our enterprise customers, marketing ops or rev ops is part of that procurement process because the event tech solution is now a major component of the marketing tech stack. I mean, in the B2B space, events make up 25% of marketing budgets. So it's a massive segment. It obviously has to be connected and incorporated into the marketing tech stack. And as an event professional, there's also a you know, greater eye, greater visibility into what it is that you're delivering and the metrics that are used to determine success there. So the event professionals are being put in a situation where they really need to understand their data and their metrics in order to be able to deliver and, and measure success. I assume that one of the other benefits of virtual events would be that you talked about, about kind of data collection and a holistic uh, view on events. Mm-hmm. And and you talked about the key benefit being essentially it's a lower barrier to entry, both for resources, budget, and many other reasons. But I assume that that also means that if you run a virtual event well, that will eventually lead to giving you the data that will allow you to host a hybrid or in-person event even better. So you can kind of refine an event online, which will give you a better success for an in-person event somewhere down the line in future if you want to go that route. Have you seen that in practice? Oh, 100%. There's actually some data out there on uh, sponsor engagement. And uh, one of the stats I, I saw, I think... The aggregate number was that 39% of companies that sponsored, initially sponsored a virtual event for a company, ultimately sponsored their first in-person event as well. So you can see that you know, you're doing half your work up front by hosting that virtual event. But to your, to your point around uh, you know, where events fall within the marketing stack, I'll give you an example that we as a business are going through right now. We're hosting a product launch customer event in a couple of weeks. And it's not, you know, it's not like a major product launch. It's more of a, hey, we've kind of done a V2 of some of this functionality. We want to, to share it with you. And the decision or the question for us ultimately came, okay, where in the marketing funnel are we targeting this event? You know, it's not a top of funnel 
event. It, frankly, it's not really even the middle of funnel. It's, it's frankly bottom of funnel prospects that are far along in the buying cycle and more so customers that were preparing for an upsell. And mm-hmm. that was a big decision factor on us as we're thinking about how we're defining success of this event. Maybe what are some of the uh, most common metrics that you see virtual events measured by? So what are the actual metrics that people are looking to achieve most commonly? And then how do they compare to the metrics that people can measure from in-person events? Are you able to talk some of that through? Yeah. So attendance has always been a big one, uh, yeah. as has registration. The other one is just, you know, again, going back to the topic of we need to generate leads as businesses, yeah. how many new contacts we're creating. But this question in itself is dependent on the organization. So if you're talking about an association, it could be based on membership engagement and activity. It could be based on the number of, uh, of, of attendees who generate additional continuing education credits. It could be based on the number of renewals that we see 30 days after an event takes place from people who attended that event. Um, you know, in the, in the B2B space, it could be uh, measured on renewals or upsells. And, you know, an example might be, let's say you're a company like HubSpot who has multiple different product lines. If you've got a customer who's on the CRM product and they attend an event you're hosting and you notice that they've checked out three sessions related to your service hub product. Well, that tells you something right then and there, and you should have a customer success or account manager reach out to that person, understand, okay, why do they have so much interest there? Maybe they're evaluating whether or not they want to renew with their existing service solution that's not a HubSpot product and determine if they should switch over and consolidate under under the HubSpot cloud. So events provide an opportunity to really get access to that information in a way that otherwise would be sort of hard to identify and understand. Creating a business case for particularly in-person events. If there's a marketer out there listening or a business owner and they're thinking, I really want to exhibit at this event, or maybe I even want to sponsor this event, but we don't really have the data to know what that's going to return. Are there recommendations that you can provide to those people about where they should look for that data? Any resources or tips that you have? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. And you know, you have to think about what are the different elements that you're getting. So obviously, there's the leads that you're capturing from that event. But then there's also the brand impressions that you're getting. And how do you value those brand impressions? And you can build a model to assess the ROI of that experience. Obviously, cost is easy to figure out. But gener- you know, the, the, the revenue aspect is a little bit more complicated. That question starts to get a little bit deeper into the marketing demand gen and marketing ops wheelhouse mm-hmm. of talking about attribution models. Because it's not always about first touch attribution. You can look at the contacts that were influenced by your engagement and experience at that in-person event. The other thing to ask is who of your existing leads and prospects that you know are going to be attending that event? And can you set up meetings during that time while you're out there to meet face-to-face and deepen that relationship? Well, look, at the end of the day, folks buy today less so from a face-to-face meeting and more so because you're delivering a business impact and result form from them. If you think that being there in person is going to be able to get you an opportunity to have that conversation and really drill down to the heart of that customer's problems and needs, and sometimes that means just passively listening to a conversation amongst different folks that have similar challenges, that ultimately can be a big driver in 
how you can actually drive results from those experiences. And sometimes that is harder to measure. Hmm. Now, obviously, lead collection, again, is easier to measure. Brand impressions, you can extrapolate. But often it's, it's, you know, it's, it's starting with, okay, here are the additional leads that we gathered or folks that we chatted with. And what are the results we see within some sort of 30, 60, 90 day period after that? Hmm. You mentioned earlier in the episode about uh, changes to Apple and basically entering a cookie-less world and the changes that are happening with cookie technology, which, you know, in marketing, that's placed a much greater emphasis on collecting first-party data, email addresses mm-hmm. in particular. It's just crossed my mind. Are there any tactics, and this could be in-person events or virtual events, that you're seeing used to help collect email addresses in the in a way that doesn't really disrupt the user experience, that doesn't feel over-intrusive? Yeah, well, uh, folks generally have to give up their email address in, in order to register for an event. So mm. uh, for either an in-person or a virtual event, that's that's happening inherently. From the perspective of an exhibitor, using a lead capture tool during your events, so being able to scan the QR code on other attendees' badges, is a great way to uh, capture their information, take some notes on them as you're having that conversation so that you can follow up very quickly after the event with contextual information. But the other part is from the perspective of the organization that's hosting the event, we've seen about a 3x uptick in the use of mobile apps during events. And what that means for the organization is that instead of just knowing who registered for the event and then ultimately who showed up, you're getting so much more information around which sessions did they attend, how they participated in polling, chat, Q&A, all of this information that you often have access to in a virtual format but didn't have access to in person is now available to you when you're providing that additional solution to, to the attendees. And frankly, the, the cost of those apps is pretty insignificant compared to the cost of hosting that in-person event. I mean, often... The cost of the app costs less than providing coffee to attendees. So that information just becomes so valuable. And, and for a lot of organizations, it's a, uh, you know, it's a no-brainer to, to introduce that. And it makes the experience better for attendees as well. Helps them ensure that they know where they need to be. It allows you to push out notifications to attendees, which you can, again, use to do things like promote sponsors or drive people to a keynote speech, and then have that information to follow up with. It's so funny the things that you forget because I hadn't even realized that about myself. I've been to a few conferences now over the last six months and yeah, I'm downloading. It's just a habit now. Like if there's an event coming up, particularly festivals, music festivals, but even conferences and events, they all have some form of associated app. And it really is just habit for me to make that process a lot easier for myself as an attendee just to download the app. I love seeing who else is attending. Typically, yep. there's open forums on like, uh, it becomes like its own mini social network for the event. And that's where I go to check in. For me, that's personally become habit. And I hadn't really made that connection that it's probably becoming habit for a lot of other people now. I don't know this about Excel events. Do you offer some kind of app development for events? Is that one of the technology solutions that you provide? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm assuming then based on what you've just said, you're seeing a greater demand for that service in correlation with the yeah, hybrid and uh, in-person events. Yeah, we've, we've seen, uh, frankly, a greater uptick than the, the number I just shared. That was an inter- industry metric. Right. Um, but yes, there is absolutely more demand, you know, for a couple of reasons. The, 
The organization hosting the event is now wanting access to that information. Upper management is expecting it. But so are the attendees. Attendees are now used to technology playing a bigger role in their event experience. So it's, you know, the, the adoption rate of technology during events is just, it's, it's far greater because that's what people, it's not just what they expect, it's what people want now. Like, make my life easier. Tell me where I need to go next. Tell me how to get there. Send me relevant information. Allow me to meet other attendees and book meetings. Make my time more productive if I'm going to take my time to get on a plane and fly across the country. Mm. And it's another place I think about when I think about events, I naturally start to think about sponsorships. It kind of a mobile app also gives you another bit of a state to offer some kind of sponsorship mechanism. So if you're a marketer or if you're an event, you're offering these advertise these these sponsorship solutions. It gives you kind of the, another aspect of your event to sponsor. Absolutely, it does. In closing for this episode, touching on hybrid events. So we talked a little bit about in person there. We talked a lot about virtual and I talked about my experience there. So I've been back to conferences. I've been to online events, but I personally haven't experienced too many hybrid events myself, none that really come top of mind. So I'm just interested in any examples. These can be examples of companies that you've helped or just examples of events that you've experienced. You think have executed the hybrid model really well. Yeah. Uh, Carnival Cruises just two weeks ago hosted a, uh, a four-city bus tour and it was a hybrid event where they allowed people to participate virtually and also in person. And they created a number of different experiences for both audiences. Uh, the event did take, take place simultaneously. But there is also this conception that, um, that a hybrid event means that virtual attendees are interacting with in-person attendees. And what we're seeing today is that's often not the intention or the case. They're almost two separate events but are events that are pulling from the same base of content. Mm. So it's less about, again, the virtual audience interacting with the in-person audience. It's more often about both of those two audiences being able to interact with each other in real time. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you were saying before in that um, if you take the, the data from a virtual event and you start to utilize that data to craft your hybrid and eventually your in-person events, it all becomes like an event campaign as opposed to a singular event. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we think about everything else in marketing from the perspective of campaigns. We should be thinking mm. about events that way too. If people want to learn more about you, Excel events, and the solutions that you provide, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on, on LinkedIn. That's John Kazarian on LinkedIn. Also, you know, I mentioned that chat support. Give it a try. Head over to our website, excelevents.com, A-C-C-E-L events. Send us a message in the chat. If you don't hear back in 30 seconds or less, then, then definitely find me on LinkedIn. Let me know about it. John, all that's left to say is thanks so much for your time. And this has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.